think we all sort of jumped on board and got some seed and thought we were going to perhaps create a market for them, but they weren't easy to grow there. You ended up with a lot of deaths, mm. um, unfortunately. The Pacific oyster is a lot more resilient and even the um, sexless oysters that we get, or the summer oysters, we actually don't grow them now either because Some, summer oysters. They, they're um, an oyster that doesn't spawn. Welcome back to another episode of Conservation Conversations. On today's episode, Dr. Dominic McAfee has a chat with June Sims. June is a Coffin Bay local, and together with her husband David, they run Southern Air Aquaculture, an oyster farming operation in Coffin Bay. June speaks about her involvement in local conservation work, her experiences in oyster farming and in nature, and about the future of our local ecosystems here in Coffins. Without further ado, here's Dom and June. I was floating around the world wondering what to do with my time and, and then went back as a mature age student and did a Bachelor of Science and didn't know what to do when I was starting my honours, uh, looking for a project to do for honours. Yeah. But that was in 2012 and in 2011 a paper was published, publishing the describing the global baseline of oyster reef ecosystems, what we've lost over the last 200 mm. years which showed that we had lost 85% of oyster reefs worldwide, including 90, over 99% in Australia. And I couldn't understand that because growing up, I'm, I'm from Perth originally, but spent most of my life on the East Coast, and you see the Sydney rock oysters everywhere. Mm. They just encrust rocks and jetties and everything. So I couldn't quite understand how that represented a functionally extinct ecosystem. So. Hence, I just wanted to learn more and dived, dived in a bit yep. um, and really enjoyed oyster ecology and, and spent time driving up and down the East Coast trying to understand what oysters do when they come together and form the little worlds that other animals live inside of. And uh, eventually, at that particular time, there was no discussion around any restoration work occurring. Um, that was just something that they did in the United States and it wasn't mm. something that was uh, on the agenda. Yep. But within a few short years, all of a sudden, there was an opportunity to restore oyster reefs and the first large-scale one was in South Australia and I was finishing my PhD and had the great opportunity to come and work on it. Mm. And then I and I've never left. Mm. I only had a two-year contract, absolutely adored in South Australia. Um, I've enjoyed working on those really large-scale projects. You know, we've got the 20-hectare reef, uh, Windera Reef, that's 159 individual boulder reefs, tens of thousands of tonnes of limestone to, to form those reefs, some of which are 50 metres long and 15 metres wide. And I also noticed that those projects are being a little bit offshore. They can potentially be out of sight, out of mind. Mm, true. And... Yeah the level of community engagement is a little bit challenging mm -hmm. because it's not easy for people to engage with offshore um, no. No. projects like that firsthand. So I'm very much interested in community-based restoration and there's more and more of that happening around Australia. It's really quite exciting and could be really pivotal to meeting um, Australia and global conservation targets which are really ambitious necessarily so and we're 
likely to fall far short of achieving them. But that's another story Mm. entirely. Uh, So this research that I'm doing is really about gathering people's um, opinions on how they perceive, engage with and uh, their experience with coastal and marine conservation. Uh, If you wouldn't mind starting by letting me know who you are and and your experience working in, in the marine in the marine world. Well, uh, my name is June Sims. I work with my husband, David. We have been in the oyster industry since about 2000 as a couple. Um, my husband's worked longer in the industry. He's also a crayfisherman in a past life before me. So he has a great love of the sea and I have been his decky or work partner, I guess, in all of that. So we, we just love being on the water. We, we love to observe the water life. We love to observe the bird life. Um, my husband's particularly interested in ospreys. And so we've been involved with their projects with putting up osprey towers and relocating nests, which has been great. That's only this year. That's been recent. Um, that, that's Coast Care? That is the Friends of Osprey. Ah. Yeah, which is different again. Going back again, we had two children that went to Lake Wongaroo Primary School um, and with that we've also been involved with any of their projects that they've done, whether it's been um, planting trees or, um, yeah, just supporting them through that. Then They have now since left, of course, um, in their 20s. So we have just... It's always been there, I guess. As soon as we moved to Coffin Bay, my, my husband also has lived here a lot longer than I have. He came here when he was 13. And we've always been very conscious of what we have and, um, yeah, keeping that, keeping it that way, pretty much. So we're, we, we probably haven't been as hands-on as I would like, seeing we've been building a business and raising a family. But if there's an opportunity... Um, like Kieran threw out the other day to, to, to make new seedlings for um, their projects coming up with Coast Care. And um, I was looking for something. So, yeah, Sunday morning there I am, yeah, nurturing seeds. So really enjoyed it. Once again, just learning something new. But, yeah, that just it, we just tend to keep our eyes open for opportunities to, to help where we can, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. That's, oh, that's that's fantastic. So you want to be engage, engaging where you can and it's where the opportunities mm. allow. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Pretty much. Um, and can you tell me, are there any sort of specific personal or, or, or cultural influences that have sort of driven you to, to be that way, to seek those conservation opportunities out? I... Can't say for myself terribly. There's not, you know, I'm I'm a Port Lincoln girl. I was pretty much, I haven't come very far, but I have travelled. And I guess when once you have travelled, you realise Coffin Bay is a unique space in its nature and environment and what have you compared to you know what you might see overseas and maybe not getting the attention that it should or population or things like that. So you. I guess you become aware that you don't want to lose what you've got. That's probably been my biggest influence would be travel. I guess our friends when we were younger were probably influenced us too. I mean, we, we were a part of the uh, regional oyster growing group. Uh, they're all friends of ours that 
that started the, the oyster industry here. So there's been that connection which is also has an element of conservation and awareness in the environment. Yeah, that's probably the two main things, I mm. guess. I, I often wonder if, I, if I'd taken another pathway or didn't marry the man that I did, then I'd I'm, I don't know whether it would be as conscious as what I am. I don't know. It's um, very much the way... But well, coming to Coffin Bay has just compounded it and, and the industry that we're in, I think, because it is a green, clean industry, or should be a green, green clean industry, yeah. Mm. So you're very much a, a York Peninsula... Uh, yeah, Air Peninsula, Peninsula yeah. Oops, yeah. local. Um, <laughs> When you were younger, was there any discussion about how the sea should be, what what conservation measures were needed to ensure? That's um, that's interesting, isn't it? I there there wasn't that kind of education. Even though when I look back at the year that I went to high school, I think. 80% of the guys that I went to school with went into the fishing industry. Yeah, there was there was probably not that awareness then. And and that has, I think, since come with our generation with the care of, you know, bycatch and that in the prawn industry. I've got friends in that industry. I've got friends in the tuna industry. Everybody's got a coxswain's ticket or drive bigger boats, I suppose, that I can think of. But it's it seems to be that my age group has kind of made those changes I guess in the fishing industry if I look back but at the time it, there was very much uh, there, there was yeah not those discussions weren't happening I don't think at school or in my surrounds anyway that wasn't the background I had at family at, at home as a family we weren't involved in the fishing industry at all that was dad was an office worker so yeah, it's, it's kind of come since then, I guess, with who we've grown up with or, yeah, friend, friends, friends' interests, I suppose, mm. yeah. So you're, you're, I think you're saying that your friends in the fishing industry have sort of almost made their own voluntary, taken their own steps yeah, to I improve... Think, I think, you know, I can think of a couple that have certainly influenced change in... The crayfishing industry, the prawn industry, definitely the oyster industry. Yeah. I think there's been the demand because, you know, bycatch and things like that hasn't been appropriate. So, you know, catching dolphins in nets or long netting or, you know, just things have just changed. But it, it might be that it was always going to, but those people have kind of found themselves in those roles to make the change, I suppose. So, hmm. Hmm, interestingly. Yeah. And it's been self-driven, which is really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, I guess. I mean, it, I think change had to happen. They're just... Those sort of practices were unsustainable, so they had to change. Yeah. yeah. But mm. just interestingly enough that it's happened within my generation, I suppose. Mm. 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 And so you've been going out on the water for 23 years mm. to your leases. Yeah. And... Yeah, you have a love of the sea, so you love observing observing things. Oh, you just right. do, yeah. What, what's changed in 23 years? Oh, probably, interestingly, that there is more seals in the bay, less penguins. There used to be quite a little colony of, of little penguins. We don't see them so much anymore, and that could be because there's more traffic 
in the mornings leaving to go out to Little Douglas or they've relocated, they're still there. Every now and again you'll see a little, a little penguin. But they're, they're food for the seals as well and that population has expanded. Other than that, I mean, I don't dive, so it's been interesting what Manny's come up with as far as what the bottom of the, the bays look like. I probably wouldn't have realised that. That's not something that's kind of within my, um, yeah, what I would have been looking at. Like, I, you, you tend to observe the colour changes of the, the environment as you go through the seasons. I'm a cloud watcher, I watch clouds. <laughs> but then again, there's my husband who's always, you know, we, we notice fish, you know, there are lots of fish around. The, the oyster lease as well, they're, you know, certainly great habitats for fish and sea life. So, yes, we do look at that. And once again, the seasonal changes of what's in the bay and not what's not in the bay, I guess. Yeah, so mainly, mainly along those lines. Not, not any particular research other than mainly general observation. Observation is pretty powerful, though. So it sounds yeah. like you're, you're suggesting that you've probably seen a, a net increase or improvement over 20, 23 yeah. years. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, then there's the razor fish, and I don't know whether that's an improvement, <laughs> but they're here, um, and I've had various conversations as to whether that's just a cyclic thing or whether it's introduced. And, of course, with the introduction of the oyster industry, there is that movement of stock from Cow and uh, Streaky Bay, which may have brought those things on baskets, mm. in baskets. So that kind of... Is interesting mussels that's another one that comes and goes but once again I don't know whether we've been here long enough and observed for a long enough length of time to know whether it's a cyclic thing or whether it is an introduced thing mm. so, um, mm. so yeah you do see things like that too mm. yeah the multiple cycles you've got your seasonal you've got your decadal and then you've got even longer cycles yes and that's right I that's think right. what we have learned over the last few decades of intensive research is how little we know because oh. there are these massive boom and bust cycles That's which right. can happen maybe only twice a century mm -hmm. and so hard to predict because marine systems are so dynamic and always changing yeah, I'm sure. um, yeah. exciting systems to, mm. to work in mm. and as an oyster farmer mm. um, and somebody out on the water who's been in Coffin Bay a fair while what did you know about the native oyster reefs not a lot I guess other than the, than the history that's provided, a book called When Were They When They Were Fishes, I have read that little section, particularly of oysters. It's the Bible. Um, yeah, it seems to be. Peter Mitchell was hunting for historical information from various local, older local identities. Sadly, we've lost them since. But there has been those conversations of what was here and, and that time of when they were dredged and what have you. And so it's... I probably don't know as much as maybe I should. Yeah, and, and why they don't continue to live. I think there's a perceived thought that there is a, a disease or something that they get and that, that dies. I don't know if that's... Yeah, don't know. I don't, I don't have the facts. I really do not know. No, yeah. but the, there's many just showing that the, the shells are out there. You, you hit them. I think our dead man's lease, I think, is quite, quite big shells out there like you can feel it when you try and drive a post in for infrastructure and what have you that there is shells there mm. of whether it's that as big as that or whether they're smaller I'm not sure on that either but um, mm. 
there certainly were, yeah, mm. plenty of them at one point. Mm. Yeah, the, the numbers are quite staggering, but the history is quite elusive. Mm. It's not really accessible. No, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah, yeah, but the quantities that were taken out of these bays yeah. is just quite staggering. Yeah. To me, as an oyster ecologist who's used to working on this patch scale, yeah. and seeing the life that thrives within a small clump of oysters. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. impossible for me to extrapolate that to the scale of reefs oh. that it would have had once upon a time. It's, it's um, yeah, phenomenal. The bays would have been completely different oh. because of that. Completely, yes, yeah. would have to have been. Mm. And do you have an interest in commercially growing the natives? We have tried. They don't... Technically, it's interesting, even though we've got these little ones here, they don't really like the system which we have a hanging um, basket system online. They die. They're, they just seem to be fairly fickle, I guess, to grow. And in the end, we, we did try them. We had a small a lot of seed come through, but, yeah, it wasn't viable for us to continue. We're only a small grower and... Yeah, to push on with that and then try and find a market to sell them through was, yeah, not viable yeah, for us. Yeah. I, I get, the sense I get is that there isn't really the market there. No. You know, a, few, a few to mm. um, high-end restaurants from, from yeah. time to time. There was a bit of excitement. Gosh, that would be, yeah. I think we all sort of jumped on board and got some seed and thought we were going to perhaps create a market for them but they weren't easy to grow there you ended up with a lot of deaths mm. um, unfortunately the pacific oyster is a lot more resilient and even the um, sexless oysters that we get or the summer oysters we actually don't grow them now either because Some, summer oysters. they're, they're a, an oyster that doesn't spawn so you can uh -huh. sell them through summer um, triploidy yeah those ones yeah and um we tried to grow well as you do you try and experiment and it once again they seem to be a very fickle oyster too and just would die before you could get them to a, a, a size that you could sell them um or they were not ever ready when you wanted to sell them <laughs> in the summer so yeah anyway just one of those quirky things and and there are growers that persist with them i don't know if there's anyone that persists with them Benghazi, but uh, very few. But in way. the end, I think we sold most of ours for the tours um, because they wanted to show their clients or wanted to give them a taste of a native oyster. So oh, okay. they went that way. But, yeah. that, but that would be, gosh, a good ten years ago now, I think. How old? Do you know how old your oyster, your Benghazi were? These ones. Ah, uh, no, the oh, ones that you were sold at the end. Oh, I could not tell you. It, it, yeah, no. Like any oyster, there's ones that survive and ones that die. And I, I almost think we've got some big ones out there still that are still alive, but mm. it's very unusual. They, um, well, there is signs, clues yeah. of the lost reef and also that there is still a little bit of a heartbeat for the con potential contemporary ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Yeah, we really didn't know what to expect when we first started looking at restoration in Gulf St Vincent. We did not anticipate much natural recruitment, so yeah. most of the focus was on hatchery rearing, yeah. which was challenging. Um, 
but the natural recruitment has just been mind-blowing. And within uh, two and a half years, you know, we do have a lot of sort of 70, 80 mil oysters. So that's, that's excellent. seven to eight metres of depth. Yep. Um, it's different between reefs, but, but some of our reefs, you know, the densities of oysters, you're talking about close to 200 mm. per metre squared of about that 50 to 80 mil range mm. after two and a half years, mm. which is... That's extraordinary. Just extraordinary. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. It can be done then. Yeah. Exciting. Um, what do you think, uh, as, a, as a Coffin Bay oyster farmer, what do you think about the idea of having a native oyster restoration here in, in I, Coffin Bay? It, well, from an industry level, I don't think it affects us terribly, but on a on a conservation and the way things were kind of level, it'd be exciting to see it come back. I, I don't know quite what you in, whether they will just remain there or whether they intend to be farmed or what you have what your extra intentions are. But um, I, I, anything that was naturally existing and could naturally exist again, I think is pretty exciting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I can imagine there might be some oyster farmers who would be concerned about something. <laughs> uh, mm. the, but but I, I can't see any obvious negatives. We're not talking about enormous reefs that are going to compete for a food source. Or yeah, no, I, stock. I can't imagine that being an issue. No, I don't. I, I haven't had that conversation, to be honest, with anyone else other than hearing Lester speak at um, your first event, but I, I can't see how they, they, would, they, they wouldn't interfere so much with our production of work, other than, you know, like they've got this little bycatch that's happening, but mm. that, doesn't, that doesn't affect us terribly. They either make it through or they, yeah, they, usually they don't. They usually end up as dead shells, sadly, through the process of grading and, yeah, that sort of thing from our own stock, so, yeah. So you don't need to periodically bring your stock in to clear off overcatch. Uh, we should we we do. Um, mainly it's for grading. Um, the Pacific orders just we we just grade for size so that your front runners are ready for sale as they get to size and your smaller ones get a, a better room space to to grow again. But um, we should be able to manage. Like algal growth and or the just the green weed or what have you with just um, raising the basket line or lowering it. The only thing that we do probably have in the past and that's something that shouldn't happen but it does is if you've got stock left too long and it gets an overcatch of mussels like tiny little black mussels and then you literally have to chip them off to at least have a presentable oyster mm. <laughs> for the market. But um, that's pretty, if you're on top of it, it shouldn't happen. Hmm. But um, because the turnaround is so quickly, um, so quick months-wise, like we can, we can sell oysters pretty much at 12 to 18 months. So if you've managed your stock well, there shouldn't be any issue with that. What, who do you sell 12 months for? Well, within that, um, the, 12, 12 the oysters are ready at 12 months normally to be up you can sell them at a at a bistro size or if mm. if they're a plate size yeah. but um 12 months that's yeah that's it, it's the growth out there it's the nutrient in the water and particularly little douglas yeah. it's a very 
ah. very good growing area. Yeah. As to whether we do, sometimes you know you're looking now, particularly with transport and that, like you're looking for shell condition as well. So you can't sell. We shouldn't really sell an oyster that's too frilly. Like if it's got too much fringe on it, because it won't travel well, it'll chip and mm. rub before mm. it gets to market. So there's all that to consider as well, which should be managed um, with just raising and lowering um, baskets in the water so that they rumble and they mm. toughen up their muscles and, and get a good shell strength as well. Mm. So, yeah. Mm, I love I love that technique for creating a beautiful cupped oyster. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of knowledge and sophistication, sophisticated thought that goes into oh. that, but it's a relatively simple... <laughs> Uh, solution it, to creating a beautiful it product. all sounds very simple and yet we we laugh my husband and I because he said every time you think you've got it down pat something will go wrong and you go how can that be but <laughs> you, you're always learning there's there's always something to learn um, yeah you, you might be just that tad too quick in lifting something and you, you end up with deaths or you drop them too low and you've had them there one week too long and they're covered in yeah, algal growth or something or other. So yeah, yeah, it's a, constantly watching. Once again, just watching the environment, not watching your weather patterns, and yeah, bring them up, bring them down, depending on what's coming through. So yeah. yeah. Clive, what, what do you do when you have a heat wave? Do you? Oh yeah, um, very hard. Um, you kind of, kind of cross your fingers a little bit. We've had um, friends that. Oh, this is years past they thought they were doing the right thing and they didn't clip their baskets up but threw their baskets on the bottom thinking that they would be better in the water but they actually got cooked in the hot water so there's not a lot you can do um, which can be a bit nerve wracking if you if, particularly for your younger stock and that but mm. once again oysters can be surprisingly resilient their little shell is just incredible um, so yeah, it's it's like when you get your blue algae, um, we've had that pop up every, oh, twice that I can remember, I think, in in the bay, and it, and it takes all the oxygen out of the water wherever it travels. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you, you don't know whether it's going to land on, well, you know, move towards your oyster lease or whether somebody else is going to, you know... And people will say, oh, you know, they've seen it in there. You know, they've had deaths or what have you. And we'll look around and go, mm, I think we've been lucky. Like, it's just luck of the draw. Yeah, it's mm. just an environmental thing that you um, can't... You'd like to think you could prepare for it, but really, yeah, you just... Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fingers crossed thing, yeah. Yeah, you're working with nature, yeah. um, which you can't... There's no amount of modelling that can not give really you no. complete certainty. And it's a bit like we used to take holidays and that and we try and set all the lines at a level that we'd hope that the water that they would just be able to sit in the water and, and happily continue to be fine for the whole month that we were away. And it's just once again fingers crossed but you can't account for a broken line or um, something that's come unclipped or what have you. So there's always an element of loss mm. somewhere in all those, yeah, unusual weather patterns or weather cycles. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, when I was, uh, I was in Hong Kong um, mm. at, some, at one stage during my PhD where I taught um, a little bit of aquaculture science 
Um, I wasn't qualified to do so, but still, because I worked with the oyster industry in New South Wales. Yeah, right. And at the end of at the end of that course, we had a great evening where we had oysters from all around the world. We had oysters from Chile. We had oysters oh, from Europe. Goodness, yeah. Um, so there was there was your Colchester oysters. There was your Brittany oysters. There was your Bermagui Sydney rock oysters, and there was your Coffin Bay uh, Pacific oysters, and. And every, you know, hands down, Coffin Bay one was the best. <laughs> I was obviously biased, but I'm pretty sure everyone agreed about that. Uh, I didn't try the local oysters because I'd been living in Hong Kong too long and working in the marine environment. Yes, that's hard. Yeah. Um, but it's everybody knew about the Coffin Bay oysters yeah. anyway. Yeah. And they probably wouldn't even be aware that there's a state called South Australia no. or an Air Peninsula, but they know Coffin Bay. Yeah, yeah, um, no, so no. If they yeah. know oysters, they know Coffin Bay. Correct. It's synonymous. Uh, how do you think, just going back to the, to the conservation, the, the image, that image that Coffin Bay has of mm. this pristine, beautiful place, mm. how, how important do you think that is to your... Your business crucial first of all yeah, yeah crucial and do you think a level of um do you think a, a restoration project like the one we're talking about could feed into that narrative i think so i think it it sits side by side pretty much it's that um once again that environment it's it's environment and conservation and i think Oysters sit in that, our, well, our industry sits in there very nicely beside what you're trying to do, I think, except one is probably, uh, it's a business, of course, but they, they're, they're both serving the same purpose, I suppose. It's mm. keeping, I mean, it's, it's keeping the waterways clean, clear, um, yeah, I, I think it's what I'm trying to say. That's, mm. that's not an easy one to no, answer. No, not but, necessarily. Um, yeah, I, I don't see them competing there. They're certainly working... It's working alongside with different focus, but still, yeah, still within that realm of conservation environment and, and that awareness, I think. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> and, and along the, the lines of that reputation, is, uh, is providencing of your products something that you think is really important? There's a lot of seafood fraud uh, oh, yeah. these, these days yeah. and and i heard someone say that there's more coffin bay oysters sold in the world than there are oysters coming out of the bay oh, something along those lines it confuses me as to how that can happen now like since we had our vibrio hemolyticus fun so it was all about traceability and and we, you know, we're just about to go through it again. Like we're we're being audited so that we can trace our stock to wherever it's going. So how can they be marketing it at that end if it's if if it's not Coffin Bay oysters? Like I I don't understand how that can continue to happen. Like if you or if if we're providing a Coffin Bay oysters, yes, it's it's Coffin Bay. But if it's something else, isn't there the same duty of care to be calling it what it is and where it's from? I guess things haven't tightened up perhaps as much as I am considering. But yes, we certainly had to, from our end, we had to make sure that everything's labelled and um, dated and, you know, how long it's been in a chiller and all the rest for transport. So mm. Mm. you would think it would be across the board for all all seafood. Yeah, I think the, from what I hear, the problem is just with the, 
complex supply chain. Mm. There's just so many players along the line mm. there. Oh, I'm sure there's always room for <laughs> yeah, yeah, little and sneaky efforts, but um, but yeah, no, yeah. interesting. Mm. Mm. And um, can I just ask you? You've been involved in the osprey um, conservation work, and, and you've done uh, coastal plantings with kids. Mm. Can you t- just give me a, a few words on not necessarily why or you did it, but how? What do you th- what do you feel you experienced from from those? Um... Oh, there's there's an enormous sense of satisfaction to, um, I I think anyway, and even community work is just knowing that what your efforts are are going to be benefiting more than, you know, just yourself. Like there's a whole broad spectrum of, you know, people, young people coming up, um, an awareness, um, supporting your community, nurturing the environment. I should have mentioned before, we also had very good friends here when our kids were growing up that were park rangers, <laughs> which also had a huge influence on my kids, but also on, therefore on us as to, you know, exploring and looking at plants, looking at animals, snorkeling, seeing what's on the bottom. You know, sadly they moved to Port Augusta, but then we kind of followed them there a bit too to explore that end of the world as well. Yeah, so... It, I just think it's enormously satisfying to to be a part of those projects and yeah, just putting a putting some effort behind it. You're just a small part of it, but it's it's enormously good fun. I, I yeah. like it. Good and fun. what you learn, I just think you know, there's there's so much more to learn. So you know, I I certainly don't know, you know, so many things about the water, but it's nice to hear someone else's perspective on what they see or what they hear or the people that we lease our lease from they they know what's in the water so you know it's interesting to have a conversation with them you get a whole different perspective of oh yeah so that's why they're growing really well you know like it's I mean we get government reports and that as well but there are those oyster farmers that actually do the that nitty-gritty themselves we don't but they do so it's good it's just it's just good information good to know yeah Mm. Yeah, and you and you did some of that with your kids as well. Some of the conservation yeah, work. With yeah, your kids. well, they they got quite well. They were brought up here. We've we've got space here in Coffin Bay, and because you know, there's always exploring and looking for orchids, and um, particularly and uh, just what's what's out. You know, lizards, snakes. You know, yes, you need to be aware, but yes, they've got their place in the environment too. So you learn with your kids. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I do like that. That's that's been a really good part. Coffin Bay is a great place to live, but it is small, and that's one thing that I need. I need to go away from Coffin Bay every now and again just to <laughs> appreciate it. But but having kids grow up here has been really lovely because whatever they've learnt from school, they've taught us, and then we've gone and explored. You know, oh yeah, we'll go for a walk along Golden Island or Gallipoli Beach and see what we can find. You know, well the dolphins been out today. It, just little adventures like that have just been terrific for a family growing up here. It's mm. it's got all of that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Mm, there's so much more nature education in schools now. Mm. Like even when I was in school in, in the 90s, um, you know, we, we didn't really have any engagement. We went out, 
for the sports field, for yeah. PE, but I don't think there was any nature engagement. And nowadays, no. it's pretty much it's very much embedded in the curriculum. Yeah. And you have nature educators within schools. Yeah, usually there's out. some kind of track or walk, I think, that high school kids do. Now, my kids definitely, well, my daughter did definitely, did um, bushwalking and a bit of camping and what have you, which I don't remember... I think we might have had an end of year beach party. That might have been it, but there really was no, <laughs> no education behind it. So mm. yeah, there is a lot more of that, which is good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It makes it makes me uh, makes me hopeful for the future. <laughs> and on that, I'll ask a final question. Oh, radio. Do you, when you think about the future, I ask everyone this: oh. How pessimistic or optimistic are you about? the state of the marine environment and how we can manage it mm. successfully? That's a big question. I wouldn't say it's hopeless, for sure. I think just even going to your meeting um, on what you're trying to achieve, like there was a very young demographic there. I actually felt quite old. And I think a lot of us came away thinking, wow, there, there is interest in, in doing a bit and doing some planting and that. And I think it's just... It's just making it known that these opportunities are there. And it's once again, it's the kids' enthusiasm that brings the parents out. Yes. And there, there goes the education up the ladder sort of thing. So from Coffin Bay particularly, I think it's quite positive. I think there's possibly more awareness than probably when I first moved here. The town changes, of course, and so do the, the people in it. But I think, I think the overall awareness is pretty, is pretty positive. Wow, that's, yeah. oh, that's great to hear. Sometimes, you know, people don't realise how good they've got it on the doorstep. Oh, yeah. But then there's also some people are very protective and aware of yep. their backyard. Yep, they yeah, are, they are. And, and there is that element here too. And there's also the older element that can remember how it was when they would have first moved here. And you, you But you've got to find that balance. Um, I think like you can't stop progress, but 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 can you do it? Can we do this better, or can we um, maybe spend that little bit more money and make it better, or with more thought behind it, rather than just whack it down and there she's done sort of thing. So, mm. um, and and I think people around here aren't afraid of speaking up if they're not if they're not sure that things are being done in the right way. I think. I think that's this is happening at the boat ramp, and you need to deal with it now, or or vice versa. Um, Karen was saying that um, council had extra funds, so now there's money for her to do work on other projects or get plants ready for other projects. So I haven't heard of that for a very long time. Like council used to be very closed off, and you were lucky if you got a letter back in reply to your letter, mm. you know, like that sort of thing. So there just seemed to be. I mean, if you can get awareness from council to community, then I think there's, you know, that's not a bad, mm. you know, it's it's adv- it's better, than, to me it seems better than it ever has been. Yeah. Mm. Oh, it's great to hear. Yeah. yeah. It's really good to hear. I think oh. there's, a, there's an awareness that from governments that, you know, they can't do everything. No. And that, um, you know, where people are have the opportunity to contribute, governments are happy for that to a certain extent, mm. but it also makes them nervous at the same time. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, because Accountability you, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. liability. And, yeah, and all of that. A, oh, long, yeah. a long history of sort of, you know, people 
dropping washing machines off to create oh. their own reefs. Mm -hmm. and, yes, I know um, stories of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. Yes, there is car bodies out there somewhere. I think there's a good fishing spot that's got a car body out there. Goodness yeah. knows how they did it. But anyway. Well, I think you, you, you nailed it where it's about providing opportunities that people can engage with. Yeah, and, I think and, so. And, and, and can fit into their lifestyle, mm. um, hopefully because it resonates with them. It's mm. a, a part of a shared vision of a cleaner, greener future, better yeah. future. And there's been some interesting work that shows that, you know, most 17% of recreational fishes in... Um, Anglo countries, so the US, uh, across Europe and in Australia, 17% of wreck fishers engage in some sort of conservation or restoration on yeah. an annual basis, which I yeah. think is a pretty high, that is, high number. That's pretty good. Yeah, um, very and, good, uh, but, but, the, but the number in Australia is about half that of what you have in the US and in Europe for various reasons, but a major reason is... Uh, because people state that they're just not aware of the opportunities yeah, to, to get involved. Yeah. Um, so it's about harnessing that interest and finding, yeah. finding people. Best people to make it known and all the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, um, social media hasn't been around, well, that long, really, in, in when I think of what my life's been like. But just the power behind... A social media event or something can can be, have far-reaching consequences whereas you know you were lucky gosh well my family used to do you know clean up Australia Day and in Port Lincoln and go around and I don't know if they even do it anymore but um, you know it, you had to read a paper to find out if there mm -hmm. was that sort of thing was on so you may or may not get the turnout but I think now there's just there is there are better ways of making people aware that these things you can join in on these things, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I uh, love hate relationship with social media like yep. so many people. Yep, um, definitely. But yes. from a conservation perspective it has massive rallying power. I mean just yes. look at um, Greta Thunberg, she sat down yeah. in front of Parliament in Sweden and within two or three years she's a global phenomenon. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so that's, that's a it's, really That's extraordinary. Example. Yeah, that's next level. Yeah. But on a grassroots local level, it, yeah, it can be really powerful. Yeah, I think so. I think it has. I think it has. It's, it's a tool that can be used anyway. It's, it's there and um, can be used for, for best benefit, I think. But mm. yes, you're right. There's always a, an element of oh, naysayers yeah. and... yeah. Yeah. I've also got young kids. I like delete. Terrifies delete. me. <laughs> <laughs> Remove. Yeah. 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 No, we're, I'm also one of the admins on the Coffin Bay Notice Board, and we are constantly having discussions about the uh, the ethics behind certain because we we seek pre-approval I suppose so you know if something doesn't meet standards we're sending it back to people you know hoping that they'll read their messages and see why we've re rejected their um, their post but um, it's a digital message board you're talking about it's it's oh, the yeah. it's the social, social media, media one yeah. yeah so it takes four of us to manage that yeah. because um, of the yeah, the complexities of community <laughs> as much as the um, the scammer of, um, we're having lots of scams trying to yeah oh. whack things on it's just 
it's just constant when it's like you know have you seen this what do you think of that you know but it's it's just trying to once again do the greater good for the community so you're not sucking somebody else into these awful you know scammy things so yeah anyway Mm. bit Mm. of fun so yes i'm i'm learning all the time with that too (laughs) (laughs) you're doing your bit for for community community. (laughs) yeah well, thank you very much for that. That was wonderful. Oh, yeah, I don't know if there was much in it that was super helpful, but anyway, it gives you a bit of a, a bit of a an overview, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah it, it really does. That was conservation conversations with Dr. Dominic McAfee and June Sims. Huge thanks to June for lending your time and knowledge, and I hope you enjoyed their chat. If you're after more information, you can find it at coffinbayoysterreef.org. On the site, you can find links to scientific articles, sign up to our newsletter to receive updates about the project, and directly donate to our community-led citizen science program. You can follow the project on Instagram and Facebook at Coffin Bay Scubico, and follow Dom at Twitter at Dominic McAfee 6 You can also find the links to all the socials at coffinbayoysterreef.org. Another way you can support the project is by rating five stars on the podcast and by sharing it with a friend. The more rating and support we can get for this project, the more good we can do for our ecosystems. We'll be back later this week with more interviews and updates about the project, so stay tuned and thanks for listening.